So, 16 years, huh? Wow. Sweet 16, 16 candles, 16 bottles of beer on the wall. Any way you want to go for it. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. Um, and it's, it's been an amazing ride. And uh, what I wanted to do this morning was just uh, talk a little bit about us. Hey, because it's all about us, right? Talk a little bit about us and uh, where we came from and what we've become and what it takes to go where we're going and all that sort of thing. It was interesting. Last Tuesday on our Zoom call, it was conversations. One of our members who lives up in Ventura County, because we've got quite the... uh, the nationwide following at this point, but it's great. But she's up in Ventura County, and there's a fledgling church that's starting up there. And um, this, uh, the pastor who's starting the church um, had asked people to come back to him with feedback about how they would reimagine church. He was kind of looking for that. How, do you, how would you reimagine church? What would you do differently? What would you like to see? You know, that, that sort of focus group sort of thing. And so what she did was pose the question to us. How would we reimagine church? And it was great because we had everybody coming at all different, from all different places and all different things. And actually, since Frank is here, I can embarrass him. It's so good to see you, Frank. But Frank said, you know, what I would like to see is I'd like to see something that's immersive and spontaneous. He said, I'd even like to see it popping up at different places all over, you know, and you never really know where it's going to happen, but you just, it pops up kind of like a worship rave, I guess, you know. So it would come up and, and, and it would be full of music and art and all these different things. And so he was imagining church that way. And I thought, you know, that's, that's really interesting, really kind of cool, you know. How that would logistically work out, well, that's for someone else to figure out, but it was a great reimagining of church. And um, it was, a, it was, this took the entire hour. I mean, it was the easiest gig I ever had. I just sat back and listened, you know, and they kind of took off and ran with it. But at the end, uh, the woman who asked the first question then said, well, Dave, you know, you haven't said anything. What do you think? And I said, you know, 16 years ago, that's exactly what we did. We tried to reimagine church. What would church be like if we could have it any way that we wanted to? How would, we, how would we take it? Where would we go with it? And you know, 16 years ago, we were, we were a pretty subversive group. Even though I was already 51, you know, we were still kind of subversive. And uh, <laughs> we wanted to really make a statement. We wanted to make a statement about what made us different and how we saw this church as completely different and try to get that out there. One of the things that we said is that we're not a community church. Define the way we normally define community church, you know, whether it's evangelical, whether it's completely theologically and doctrinally based, and whether the focus is on Sunday. Everything that we had come to understand about what a community church is, you know, we're not really that. What we are is a recovery ministry. Our leadership group had been working in recovery for over five years at this point, all together, both in recovery and worship. But that's who we really were. We were people who worked with people who needed to get just back up to the waterline, you know, just right back up to the surface. Take that, that negative space and get it to just a place of equilibrium so then they could take off the rest of the way. And so we saw ourselves as a recovery ministry that also worshipped together. And it was a, 
a case of saying, you know, Sunday is just another one of the seven days of the week. It's, it's, it's differentiated by role and by what we, activity and what we do, but it's not this huge focal point because what was going on in our ministry was, was seven days a week being completely connected throughout all of that. At the time, what we were really seeking was residential space. We were looking for places that people could live. These people who were homeless, these people who were addicts and alcoholics, these people who were from out of state who were looking for recovery and going through rehab, whatever they happened to do, there was this old decrepit motel on Algadon Street, downtown San Clemente, and uh, Jeff, my partner, was just adamant, that's the place, that's the place, and we were talking to them and seeing if they were going to sell or would sell, what would the price be, and the idea was you had all these motel rooms that could be the residences, and then there was this larger room in the kind of the center of the complex that could be the, the meeting place, the place where we could have Sunday worship. But that's what we were looking for. Jeff also had this idea that the Miramar, you know, the Miramar right down there on, on the, at North Beach, that was our place too. <laughs> he even had a, he had someone draw an elevation of, of the Miramar, and he had it laminated. He carried it with him wherever he went, and it was always his talking point, you know, because he was always fundraising. He was the, the yin to my yang, you know, or the yang to my yin probably is the way it goes. Uh, he was the one who was always out there beating the bushes, always the, the, the one who was the, uh, you know, the, the front face of the effect. And he had that vision that the Miramar was also going to be. If it wasn't the Algodon, it was going to be the Miramar. But that's the kind of thing that we were looking for. That's what we had in our minds, that what we really were was going to be this hub for recovery where people could come and live and they could do workshops and get counseling and get therapy and get whatever they needed for their recovery. And then also we were going to bring in this whole spiritual valence to it worship on Sundays and, and uh, the worship gathering on Tuesday nights. And so that was really where we started out and what we were trying to achieve. And then, of course, reality sets in. And those venues were never going to be ours. It was out of our reach completely. But one of our founders, Bubba, who you probably heard us talk about, um, he comes from a, a very wealthy family. In fact, his family was the, well, the part of the group that got the lease f for 30 years from the county of Orange to develop Dana Point Harbor. And so he was well ensconced over in Dana Point Harbor. So he was able to get in there and he got us the youth dock, you know, the, the boathouse down at the end of the youth dock right next to Baby Beach, if you know what we're talking about there. And so that was our Sunday morning spot. And then the, I think it's called the Cove Room. It's the big banquet facility that's up at the parking lot area on the front end of the dock. That was our Tuesday night. And that's what we had. We had Tuesday nights for our recovery worship gathering where treatment centers from all over uh, South County were sending people. We sometimes have 800, 80 to 100 people, um, all young, recovering addicts and alcoholics. And then on Sunday morning, we had our worship. And that's where we started. May 20th, 2007 was our first Sunday over there on the youth docks. And we knew that it was temporary, but it was a place to start. Because what we realized we needed was a seven-day-a-week footprint. We needed to have a dedicated space where we could then put in place all these other pieces that we really couldn't do because we didn't have the roof over our heads to be able to take that recovery to its fullest expression. And we had trouble labeling ourselves. What the heck were we really, you know? And because we were subversive, we didn't want to call ourselves a church. 
Emily really didn't even want to call ourselves Christian because they, those terms were so loaded. They had so much connotation that was so negative, especially in the recovery world, where people are typically in the recovery world because they've been traumatized earlier in life, starting from childhood. And often that was at the hands of the church or it was at the hands of someone who proposed or you know, projected religious values. And so a lot, so many of them came in with chips on their shoulders. It was difficult for us to reconcile that. What do we do? How do we call ourselves? And it didn't describe the reimagining that we were doing of who we thought we were. Now, for me personally, I was already 15 years at least into my contemplative journey. And I was 20 years into the journey of reimagining Jesus and reimagining Christianity from an Eastern point of view, from a Hebrew Aramaic point of view, which was my turning point as a pastoral candidate at the church that I was in at the time. And our leadership group formed around those principles. That's what drew them to me and my teaching, first of all, but then the group as a whole was focused on understanding Jesus' message from this Eastern point of view because it changes things. I mean, that's what we've been doing this whole time we've been doing the Red Letter Study. It's what I've been doing for 16 years here in this position. Some 750 messages so far have all been geared toward trying to reimagine Jesus as his first followers would have understood him from that Hebrew Aramaic point of view. And when you filter it through their worldview, through their culture, through their understanding of the way life works, their own cultural narrative, their self-narrative, and their language, God's love becomes the most prominent feature on the horizon. There's really nothing else. Nothing else competes with it. And even though Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, everything was subservient to that love and to the expression of that love, and to the engagement with that love. And so our leadership group had formed around these principles. And so we kept talking about how we would deconstruct the worldview and the theology and the doctrine that we had come in with, although we didn't use that word 16 years ago. It's become kind of vogue now. But at least we are de-emphasizing theology and doctrine in favor of the personal experience, the relationship with God's love, the personal experience and relationship with others and with God by extension in that love. In other words, contemplative experience, which is focused on getting our heads out of the way and connecting with others person to person, presence to presence, heart to heart, spirit to spirit, now, that doesn't mean that theology is not important. Of course, theology is still important. But we were going to be using theology the way the Eastern Orthodox Church does, a whole third branch of, of Christianity that we typically don't talk about here um, in the United States. But they look at theology as limiting error for us. So theology doesn't make an absolute statement about God's nature or absolute statement about things that we can't possibly know for sure. But what it does do, it limits the playing field. It puts guardrails and fences up at the edges of the playing field. Beyond this point, you are going into harm. You are going into self-harm. You're going into the harm of others. You're going into places that definitely we do not belong as followers of Jesus. So it defines the field. We can play in this field, 
We can experiment. We can move. We can be wrong. It defines the error. That's what theology can do for us. It grounds us. It gives us a paradigm with which to work. That's the way we wanted to use theology, not as an absolute description that we had to follow slavishly throughout our spiritual formation. And of course, we were understanding this theology through the Aramaic interpretation of the scriptures, of the message that has been preserved for us by, from Jesus in those scriptures. Now, reality was setting in here again. That any label that we use that didn't say Christian or any label that we use that didn't say church was kind of too cute by half. We tried and tried to come up with something, but whatever we came up with just seemed deceptive. I mean, we are Christians in the sense that we are absolute, you know, followers of Jesus. We want to be the most closely followers of Jesus. I didn't word that very well, but... We wanted to follow Jesus as close as anybody, but it was going to be with this new understanding. And so we realized, you know, okay, we're Christian. We're going to have to somehow differentiate ourselves as people get to know us rather than in the label. And as far as the church went, well, we called ourselves a faith community, and that was fine. But, you know, after a while, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a church, right? And so, you know, a few, I mean, six, seven years ago now, we went back to just saying the effect church. And so the labels were something that we did struggle with, trying to decide how is it that we really get across the fact that we have reimagined our faith as an Eastern expression, which makes such a difference. But this is what we were trying to do. We had trouble naming the effect. <laughs> Everything seemed difficult because... It was out of the box, right? And, and all the usual things didn't fit. And nothing fit that we, we, were, we were trying. But we kept talking about God's love. This is the, the guiding principle. Always talking about the primacy of personally experiencing this love. Not conceptualizing, but experiencing it. How one experience, or once you experience God's love, it changed everything. It affected you in a very, very radical way. And in fact, we knew that we had finally experienced God's love when we were beginning to live the effect of God's love. The effect of God's love on our daily life and our choices and the quality of our relationships. And then we were saying that we were chasing the effect of God's love. Not the love itself, because that's abstract. And I don't even know if that's possible to love God directly Jesus indicated that we love God by loving each other. That's the way that we do it. And so we were chasing the effect of God's love in the quality of our relationships, the quality of our ability to love. And by chasing the effect of God's love, you get a twofer because you get the effect and you get the cause. You get God's love as well. Finally, after all this was going round and round and round the maypole, Marion just said, well, how about the effect? <laughs> Duh, yeah, the effect, that's it. And so the effect became our name. But that little subversive piece stuck because even in our incorporation papers, the effect is spelled with a lowercase t. So that's our little nod to being a little bit different. On the other hand, who's ever heard of a church called the effect? That's pretty uh, unique in and of itself. And so here we were, reimagining church as a recovery ministry that worshiped together. We acknowledge that everyone is recovering from something. 
everybody. Whether substance abuse has been your thing, or whether it's process addiction, whether it's emotional, obsessive behavioral patterns, whatever it happens to be, if there's unfinished business in our lives, we're still recovering. And that's what we were about, to bring everybody up who's at a deficit in their emotional, behavioral, and cognitive space up to the waterline, up to ground zero. And then from there, prepare them for the spiritual flight. Prepare them for the spiritual formation that we're here to engage. That's what it's all about. And our leadership group was interesting. Our original board members, um, our original board was six members. It was three couples. And half of them were addict, recovering addicts and alcoholics. So you got to picture our board meetings. It was kind of like being inside a pinball machine. I mean, just the, you know, the, the last thought was the next line. I mean, whatever the agenda, agenda said, forget about it. It was just like, sometimes Marion and I and Bubba's wife would usually sit in there just looking at each other. It's like, whoa, this thing left the station. It was amazing we got anything done. But there was such love and connection in the group that we managed to do it. But it was, it was crazy. Most of our pastors, most of our leadership group were all in recovery. You know, there is very few normies, quote unquote, right? If you've heard that term before, those who are not affected by substance abuse. In the mix, most of us were recovering. All of us were recovering. But there is a personality type for addicts and alcoholics that tends to be a little more ADD than on the normie side of the scale. And so that's also what we were dealing with. We decided that we didn't want to call what we did here, like on a Sunday morning, a service. That implied passivity to us. And so we called them gatherings. We gathered them around the epic idea that you probably heard me prattle on about. Experiential, participatory, image-based, and communal and the idea that this is the way young people are processing information, so different than baby boomers and, and the modern era. You know, we, we are the ones who are word-based and representational and, and so on and so forth. But to be experiential and participatory and communal, which is exactly what the ancients were who wrote our scriptures. They were epic too. And so we wanted our gatherings to be called gatherings. We wanted them to be epic. We wanted them to be different. We wanted to experiment. And we did experiment with immersive and, and epic elements. You know, we, we did some pretty interesting things with art and people involved in painting during the worship services and so on and so forth. Then, of course... Reality, right? Whenever people meet together, there's three things that we can do. And there's really only three things that we can do. We can eat food. We can tell stories and sing songs. Basically, that's it. Tell stories, sing songs, eat food. That's what we do. You can dress it up. You can wear funny hats. You can do all sorts of different things. But when it comes right down to it, that's what we're doing. We're singing songs, eating food, and telling stories. And we realize that we are spending a lot of time focusing on style, focusing on the container that was holding our community together. And what we needed to do is get back to the substance, get back to the content that goes into the container. And so we went back to basics, basically. You know, we've always had excellent music here. We've always had excellent players. It's been just a kind of a amazing thing that our little community has been able to tra attract and hold such fine musicians. 
But we focused on that excellent music and continuing to create that environment, that opportunity to go deep into worship, to have a contemplative expression and experience in our worship. We went back to just the message, always being provocative, hopefully. Not too much, not too little, but provocative and always pointing again to that experience of God's love, of the need to engage it ourselves, not to passively accept it from another source, but first person, experience what this means. And then, of course, to add the counseling and the therapy, the treatment, the spiritual direction that everybody needed, wherever they were on this spectrum. That was the content that would go into the container. Because, again, the reality, the reality is that a contemplative church is an oxymoron. Contemplative church is an oxymoron. When you're talking about the container, okay, the actual style, the way that we go about doing things, it's antithetical to the four S's of contemplation. Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. The more we add to the container, the more we're getting away from those four S's. And the truth of the matter is when we get together in a, in a group like this, anything that we do in words, anything that we do in sound, runs against the silence and solitude of contemplation. And don't get me started on marketing and promotion. I just hate that stuff. But when we get into marketing promotion, that goes against the stillness. That goes against the simplicity. Now, all those things are necessary. How do you bring it together? What we realize is that there really is no contradiction in calling a, a church contemplative in the content. It is in the container, in the style, in the way that we do those three things, right? Sing songs, tell stories, and eat food together. That may be a contradiction, but not in the content. So within the more conventional format of a Sunday morning worship service, we wanted to shape the content, not the container or the style, but shape the content so that it always pointed to and always assisted people in their own personal program for contemplation, their own engagement in contemplation. That's what we want to point people to. We want to show them how Jesus was contemplative, how he was a mystic, how everything he did was trying to get his followers to go to the same place that he was going, not to passively sit back and just take what he was giving out, but to experience it for themselves because he knew that is the only way that the Father's love becomes real. That is the only way that the effect of the Father's love becomes real. And so everything that we would do together would point to that. And in that, the content and the container would become one. It would become one in each one of our members' hearts as they engaged. Because it either happens there or it doesn't happen at all. What we do here together is a sacrament. But a sacrament is an outward expression a communal expression of an inward transformation. If the inward transformation hasn't taken place, then there is no sacrament. That's what we were trying to make sure happened. 
that the sacrament took place in the hearts of each one of us, that then we would bring to our times together. And so all we do here corporately is meant to point toward the shape of this journey that Jesus has described for us and the radical transformation that comes from this personal experience of God's love. We're here to show everyone that there's a there there that you may never have considered, that you may never heard about, therefore didn't even know that you needed to attempt to move in new directions. We were here to give permission. So important. This is something that 30 years ago I struggled with. I needed to get permission to let go of the old ideas that I had been taught since I was a young Catholic altar boy. I had to give, get permission to be able to move beyond that, to put them aside and see whether they are true or not. We were here to give that permission as well, to let go of old thinking if it needed to be let go of, to be able to see with new ears. See with new ears? See with new eyes. Hear with new ears. That's one of Jesus' favorite saying, he who has ears, let him hear, right? This is that call. Can you hear? Are you willing to let go of what you think you know so that you can see something absolutely pristine? What's right there in front of you? And hear something new. Can you do that? We were here to give that permission. It's still about recovery, trying to get everyone to the baseline. But get them to that place so that they are now ready to take the leap, to take the dive, to take the descent that we've talked about over and over that is the absolute essential hallmark of contemplative life. If you're going to follow Jesus' way, you need to be willing to sell everything. You need to be willing to drop your nets at the shore. You need to be willing to let go of everything that you're clinging to for survival so that you can find a completely different way to process life and where your real survival comes from. Who are we really dependent on? We will never know if we continue to hold on to whatever has worked for us so far. No matter how miserable that makes us, we hold on. And so the question is, 16 years ago, did we as a group, take this dive? Did we make this leap? Did we make this descent? Well, I'd like to say that consciously and intentionally, of course we did. Of course. That was, that was in the forefront of our minds. But then reality steps back in, right? And the truth is that we really had no idea how deep the rabbit hole goes when we started this. And if we had, would we have continued? Again, I'd like to say, well, of course we would. But there's been a lot of loss along the way. Things I never in a million years would have seen coming. We had two pastors, both addicts, both alcoholics, both relapse, both lose their marriages of many years in the process. One ended up relapsing a second time and died from the overdose. And we still don't know exactly what it was. He left a note, so it looked like suicide, but was it really have no real idea. The other pastor ended up in jail for a time, came back out the other side. We had a third pastor who challenged me in open session on Sunday morning, and, uh, and then when he didn't get the answer that he wanted, this is right out in front of everybody, interrupted the message, <laughs> 
and then got up and announced he was resigning and walked out the door. And you may be thinking after that, what in the world are these guys smoking? What's going on here? What are they doing? My gosh, you know? Truthfully, the pastors that I'm talking about had an idea as I look back on this, I didn't know at the time, as I've thought about this and I've watched myself over the years, I realize these pastors had an idea of what they thought this church, this ministry, this experience was supposed to be. And yet life was presenting something so radically different, it challenged their narrative, it challenged their way of seeing, and they couldn't get their footing. They couldn't get their balance or their equilibrium. And it started to tear at the fabric of their lives their composure, their comportment, their just ability to continue on. Now, two of them have recovered, and they're still my good friends. I don't see them very much as more, anymore, but, um, but I still talk to them, and we're good friends, and one of them comes at times and joins us here again. Um, the other one moved to West Virginia, and he's leading a church over there, but we still communicate. He even calls and asks questions sometimes about certain things that he's dealing with. It's been great to see the restoration of that, you know, the forgiveness of all of that. But going through it, oh my gosh. And of course, then we've had Frank Billman and Jim Allen, early pastors also that have just, the transformation in those two men. I mean, Frank was a, an alcoholic and a Southern Baptist for crying out loud to watch the transformation in him as, as everything in his self-narrative was challenged. But he was willing to let go of what he thought he knew and see what this new vision could do for his life. And it was remarkable. And Jim as well. Jim is the one who will come and nail down here if you, if you know Jim. He's having some health problems, but there's a balance that has happened. But we're a recovery ministry, and early on, we were a recovery ministry with treatment centers. You know, Nina established our first outpatient center. We established an inpatient together. We were always having a throughput of young addicts and alcoholics that were here in state just for a few months sometimes, or sometimes for six months to 12 months, but they were passing through. But imagine how many relapses we've seen over these 16 years how many overdoses and deaths we've seen over 16 years. We've seen our share of them. And then, of course, seven years ago, we lost Lenny, you know, dear friend, our, one of our staff members at the treatment center, and he took his own life. There has been so many of these kinds of losses that have shaken us to our cores. But I can say honestly, as a group, We've never shied away from the losses. We've never tried to bury or whitewash the traumas. We've embraced them. We've discussed them. I discussed them openly from here, from the pulpit. We discussed them in groups. We discussed them because it's life, right? That's one thing about recovery. It does not allow you to whitewash life. You cannot do it. And those losses, those traumas take you right down to ground zero. They have the ability to just blow out all the projections, to blow out the illusions, to take life right down to what is really meaningful. And to see the difference, to see how much time you've been spending skittering along the surface as opposed to getting down where things really matter. This has been our experience. Year to year, we've never known whether there was going to be enough funding for the next year. 
It's just been that way for 16 years, and yet it's 16 years and counting, and we're still here. And we're probably in a better financial place right now than maybe we've ever been in 16 years. So go figure. And despite the losses that we've encountered, just look around. Look around at these faces. We're all here. We chose to be here. We chose that descent. We chose to come into this place and give this a try for as long as we do. And let's face it, contemplation is not a crowd pleaser. When you tell someone that they're going to have to make the descent, when you tell someone that they're going to have to go through the disturbance and the difficulty and the trauma of having to let go of everything that you've relied on for maybe decades in your life to see if you can see something brand new, that's not going to draw a crowd. And we've remained small, but we've always had this core, this strong core. And many of those young addicts that we treated and have treated over the years, they're all scattered now across the country. And they've got jobs, and they've got marriages and families. They're having babies. They are absolute miracles. And we get to hold on to them through social media, and we get to continue to connect with them in ways. But the ability and the privilege of being able to be here, be present when the miracle happens, you can't have one without the other. You can't have a miracle without the loss. You can't have the ascent without the descent. You can't have it that way. This is life. We're either going to live it fully and completely, or we're going to hide someplace inside our own minds and illusions or inside the walls that we build around ourselves. 16 years. So 16 years ago, what exactly were we saying yes to when we said yes to this community? I wanted to read you just a little piece from Richard Rohr. It's amazing sometimes how his daily meditations sometimes hit exactly where at least I am and some of you are. But, but just listen to this. He calls this embracing change. If we're going to see life as a succession of thresholds to be crossed, and that's a pretty good way of looking at life, a succession of thresholds to be crossed, we are reminded of the journeys of the people of Israel in the desert. And then we find symbols and images that we can apply to our own experience. The very words Passover and Exodus carry a fullness of meaning as a journey from bondage into freedom. It's important to remember that the Passover was a yearly ritual so that its memory was kept alive and the cycle lived through time and time again. That's what ritual does for us. That's what coming back here and sometimes hearing kingdom a million times over does for us. It keeps the memory alive. It's tamping it down deeper and deeper into our spirits, into our muscle memory. The psalms are the journey songs of the people who made that passage. Time and time again, they raised a fist to God and shouted angrily angrily at him. They are the songs of a people who were moving away from a known situation into the unknown. They were often angry with a God who removed all those certainties, who instead seemed to be leading them along an apparently precarious path. They did not sit down for long beside gently flowing streams or linger in lush meadows. In the Gospels, we watch a Christ who in dismissing certainties, and that is a great description of Jesus' ministry, dismissing certainties, shows us what freedom might mean. 
We watch the way in which he enters into people's lives and dissolves an existing situation, whatever it might be. The likelihood was that the condition had promised security, safety. But now Christ challenges the people to leave their nets or to leave a nice, nice safe booth and follow him. He says to Peter, James, and John, come, and to Matthew, stand up, move, walk, come with me. Our God is a God who moves and invites us to move with him. God wants to pry us away from anything that might hold us too securely, our careers, our family systems, our money-making. We must be ready to disconnect. There comes a time when the things that were undoubtedly good and right in the past must be left behind. For there is always the danger that they might hinder us from moving forward and connecting with the one necessary thing. Christ himself. God's love itself. Of course there is loss. And it is right to grieve and not to pretend otherwise. Insecurity makes certitude attractive. And it is in times like these that I want to harness God to my preferred scheme of things, for it is risky to be so vulnerable. Yet it is this vulnerability that asks for trust and hope in God's plans, God's plans, not mine. So I try to learn each time that I am called upon to move forward, to hand over the past freely, putting it behind me, and moving on with hands open and ready for the new. So this freedom of the exodus, right? Let my people go. The freedom of the exodus of being able to move out of that place of slavery, out of that place of oppression, out of that place of misery comes with a price. It costs us everything that we think we have now. It costs us everything we think we know. But what we have now is slavery, you might be saying to yourself. What we have now is misery. What we have now is not so good. What we have now is the limitation, the stress, the anxiety of our lives. Isn't that a price that we'd be willing to pay, of course, for freedom? But here's the catch. As bad as it may be, it's what we know. It's what we have now. The devil we know is always preferable to the devil that we don't, right? It's what we have come to cope with. It's what we have come to terms with. And even if it's difficult, at least it's known. At least it feels somehow certain. Something solid to cling onto in the midst of all that uncertainty out there. And even when we say yes to freedom, the uncertainty of moving out into those new spaces, into what appears like wilderness, can beat us down, cause us to regret the choice that we made, long for the old days, the way the Israelites longed for their leeks and onions that they were able to grow along the banks of the Nile. And what did Jesus say? He said, anyone who puts his or her hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. That sounds a little condescending, but what he's saying is, if you're going to be constantly regretting the back, 
what was back there, the past, what you had before. If you're still going to remain clinging, you simply cannot go where I am going. It is not possible. Because where I am going is such a radical difference, it will cost everything. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. Now, what are we giving up? Are we thinking it's our jobs and our homes? No. For us, it's the internal narrative. It's that, it's that story that we tell ourselves. It's our worldview. It's our way of thinking the way things are. That's what we're being called to let go of. And that's a powerful force. Maybe the most powerful force in our lives is that narrative because that's the glue that we think is holding our lives together, holding our entire world together. And so 16 years ago, for those of us who were there at the beginning, and for you, whenever you joined us here at The Effect, we were saying yes to having everything that we thought we knew about ourselves, about our life, about our church, about our ideas of a reimagined fellowship and our ability to build it, we were saying yes to having all of that challenged, to having all of that dissolved. We didn't know it at the time 16 years ago. You probably didn't know it when you walked in the front door. But what we're saying is a yes to a complete loss of certainty to admitting that we really don't know how things work. We were saying yes to having our hearts broken and not shying away from that pain, that loss. We were saying yes to having our faith shattered, shaking fists at God because it all seems so unfair. But as we stayed on the path, as we kept showing up here, we began to see how the recovery works. We began to see what grows back after the wildfire has raged through. The miracles that we never saw coming, never expected. The friendships that we forged here that even as they change are going to remain lifelong. And if we allow the fire to do its job, to burn everything away that we thought dear, what grows back is what is true. What grows back has to be true because it's what we're seeing with truly clear eyes. And what grows back is ours to keep. We don't stay divested of everything. It comes back. But in the simplicity, only the important essential things are the ones that we continue to cling to. We were saying yes to life but life unredacted, life unadorned, life unclothed. That's the kind of life we're saying yes to. Because the reality is, if we engage contemplation, if we engage Jesus' way with any agenda, and for any reason other than the simple, pure desire to lose ourselves in God's presence... We're going to lose our minds. That has happened since time immemorial. If we bring an agenda into the silence, into the presence of God, we have lost our journey before we begin. We don't find ourselves, we don't develop ourselves in God until we first lose ourselves in God. We said yes 
to that letting go, to that loss. Now, if I had known how deep the rabbit hole goes, even to the point that we've gotten here at year 16, would I do it all over again? (laughs) In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. I can't imagine not not having had this experience over these last 16 years. Just the privilege of being able to sit here this morning and look at your faces is payment in full. Thank you for giving me personally the opportunity to do what I've been able to do for 16 years. But it's up to all of us, every single one of us, to find the real trick in life, which is to keep saying yes. Day after day, moment after moment, Be willing to be vulnerable. Be willing to have your heart broken again and again to keep growing and have the experiences that life is all about right until our last breath. That's Jesus' way. That's kingdom. And that's beautiful. Thank you for these 16 years. (laughs) All right.